the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history of Welcome. You are tuning in to episode number 34 of Sake on Air, the world's one and only, as well as the very first podcast dedicated to all things sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, and I am one of several of your regular hosts here on the show. And this week, as always, we are recording and broadcasting from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. This week, we're continuing with our Know Your Host series, where we bring on your hosts to talk about, well, themselves. With a good bit of regularity, we actually get quite a few requests from listeners saying that they would like to know more about the people that are hosting the show. And so we thought we would oblige. So this is going to be the third of these Know Your Host sessions. Uh, If you'd like to track back a bit, there are two past episodes where we've interviewed now a total of four of our regular hosts. And we've got a couple more to go. This week, the first half of the episode, we, we will hear from Marie Nagata. Marie is interviewed by Mr. John Gauntner. And following her interview, we will have a few words from, well, none other than, well, my, myself, actually. You'll hear from myself, uh, Justin Potts, and I am interviewed by Sebastian Lemoine. If while you're listening to, or after you're done listening to the show, you would be able to take even just a couple of minutes to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform it is you're streaming or enjoying Sake on Air on, it would really, really be a great help to all of us here at the show. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Sake on Air. Uh, Today, I'll be interviewing Marie Nagata and see what has occurred in her life to lead her down the sake path. Uh, what she has in her background and past, and where she tends to go from here. So, hi Marie, good to see you again. Good to see you, John. You've been traveling around the world. I travel a bit too much these days, and it'll probably all do. settle down in about forty years. So I've got that to look forward <laughs> to. Um, so here we are. Here we are, indeed, and we might as well just jump right in. So we first met when you took my sake professional course. And then we met again when you took the second level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's kind of what got the sake ball rolling for you. You did So what indeed. led you to do that? Mm. Um, and if you don't mind, why don't we start by you giving me the concise version mm. of how you got where you are. Right. So I often get asked, you know, questions like, so how did you get started in the world of sake? And my one word answer to that or one sentence answer to that would be, it was all because of a French woman. It's always because of a French woman somewhere. Um, so my friend and former co-worker, Anna Tiak, who was also an, an alumnus of your course, um, she and I used to work together here in Tokyo. She was a wine professional here who had taken your course uh, because she had so much passion about learning all things Japanese and all things sake. And up until that point, I didn't really have a good impression of sake altogether. Not to say I had any idea about what it is, but it's just 
during my college years leading up into my early 20s, I always thought it was like this harsh drink, you know, um, higher proof, like always associated older guys drinking on the curbside. Seems to be a typical assumption um, throughout Japan these days. I guess so. And around and, the world, actually. And unfortunately, that seems to be the case. And, you know, I'm guilty as... Um, I'm as guilty as charged, I guess. Um, I used to be one of those people. Uh, not to mention, you know, it includes doing sake bombs back in my college days in the U.S. But um, so when she said, you know, Marie, you should really get into the world of sake. I think you'll like it. I didn't really take her word seriously. But she did also allude that there were some fairly good looking guys who also took the course who were <laughs> quite highly cultured. So I was like, hmm, that could be an investment. <laughs> so that's the French woman leads to <laughs> back to men. I guess so. So um, yeah, that's kind of how I got for how I got interested in your course first, and um, and also um, relating back to Anna, I guess um, she she stayed with me for a couple of days before she left the country, and when she left, she left a bottle of sake behind. That happened to be I still remember to this day um, a label called Namaiki from Mikotsuru Brewery. Oh who had unfortunately gone under um, between then and now, and who have recently come back um, back alive and kicking, I guess. I'm not sure if they still make this very same brew, but this one particular, you know, very, um, I guess, friendly and cheerful Nama just totally changed my idea of what sake is and can be. Nama can do that for people. I Nama guess Nama tends so. to really <laughs> be appealing to a lot of people for sure, so... And I paired it with a um, with a pasta dish that night, a uni-based cream sauce pasta. Did you just make something and find out that went well together? Did you actually no. taste it and think about it? <laughs> no, I had no idea whatsoever. And this particular uni pasta actually was a was a frozen microwave pasta. So even with something very casual, this particular nama went just blissfully together. Very and cool. Yeah. Wow. So that, so that was a big, that was a big turnaround. That was a very big turnaround for me. Yeah. I find that sake is probably the most food friendly beverage on the planet. Um, you can do precise pairings if you want to, but the most important thing is almost never do have a, have a train crash. Mm. It's always, it, it's never going to be bad. Mm. It looks like uh, you hit that note on that night. That's Absolutely. cool to hear. That's cool to hear. After you took the first level course, you waited about a year, correct, to take the second one? Yes, I did. Were you involved in any sake-related work in that one-year period? Not apart from excessive drinking. That's that should not work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very valid and important activity uh, if you're learning about right. sake, but it's not work. So you actually didn't take that leap into a sake career. No, uh, not right at away, all. Um, I was still working um, in the corporate life here in Tokyo, um, having to do nothing at all with sake for the, I guess the next year, perhaps a year and a half or so. Um, and in, in that time I'd taken your, your level two course. And what led you to level two? Just needed to know more? Just needed to experience more? Um, I guess my fellow classmates from level one, uh, they, they encouraged you to do that. Huh? <laughs> Peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I had, um, we built such amazing friendship throughout the first um, group of classmates from level one and they were just amazing fun people to hang out with some of my bestest memories um, involving sake or 
you know, sharing a few, maybe a couple of bottles of sake with them. Um, it always helps. <laughs> it sure does. And um, I found out that quite many of them were coming back immediately the year after for year level two. So I figured, you know, I was going to continue learning about sake. So why not just jump right in? Excellent. And it was there then at level two that you remet, I believe, uh, one Mr. David Joel, the owner and master brewer of Zenkuro Sake in New Zealand. Why don't you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, Dave is a great guy. Um, he and I met for the first time taking your level one course. And um, he is a very ambitious sake brewer based in Queenstown in New Zealand. And um, between level one and level two in that year, Dave himself had um, grown, I guess, as a brewer incredibly, um, going from brewing, you know, maybe two three five liter tanks in his garage to actually a commercially sized operation uh, one man operation nonetheless but um i was able to taste his sake the first time around and the second time around and just to see how much he's he's come was just sensational and um at that point it so happened that um, this corporate life in Tokyo was really getting to me. I was, you know, the same old story of working around the clock, um, client phone calls at 11 at night, at 6 in the morning, what have you. And I was starting to question the value that I was bringing to the world through what I was doing, um, namely marketing and advertisement. So I figured I could probably take an adult gap year, um, have some time to rethink and reorganize my life and what better way than to actually get you know hands-on experience brewing sake wow very very bold decision having said that i think a, a lot of people on the sake path have found themselves in that position one time or another mm. it's like, i can't continue with the work i'm doing and i've got this interest here so i might as well pursue that so sake does that to you huh? <laughs> it certainly does it certainly does that's cool how long did you work over there um, I was there for one year. And did you do any actual brewing or did you help around with other things? I did I did brewing every month, actually. Um, at that time, it was mostly Dave and I and um, another guy that would come in and help who were doing the production work. So we did everything from, you know, lugging around bags of rice to washing it to brewing it to filtering to bottling and even labeling each bottle by hand. Um, every bit of that was done by Joel, uh, oh. Dave and I. Cool. Sounds like you redefined craftsmanship when you were working there. <laughs> Where did you guys yep. get your rice, by the way? Uh, we get. Uh, we used to import from the States, uh, car roads, 60% milled, I believe. Already um, milled, you imported it. Right. Oh, wow. But halfway through my tenure with Zenkuro, we shifted to Japanese rice, Gohyaku Mangoku, imported from Japan. That must have been expensive. Mm-hmm. We don't need to do the math here. <laughs> <laughs> so That's when people rice. come to us and ask us, you know, why does your bottle of sake go for twice as much of an average wine, you know, in New Zealand? The simple answer is it's literally made by hand. And a lot of our stuff is sourced from outside of New Zealand. Very interesting. So you've been working with sake now for what? Six years or so, maybe? Um, not even. I think the first year I took your course must have been 2014 or 15. And I only really delved in in 2017. 
that's when you started to go deep, deep, deep into the road, right? right? Elbows deep, as I would say, you know, washing bags of rice in freezing water. Um, um, so the work you're doing during the day currently is actually not related to sake. Is that correct? That is correct. As of three weeks ago, actually, um, I've jumped back into um, into corporate life, I guess, um, here in Tokyo, working two jobs, um, you know, a corporate job by day and still going strong with my sake business by night. And the reason behind um, that decision is actually um, somewhat related to sake, um, still not quite organized yet, but um, I realized after about a year of working in the sake industry that my interests and visions were kind of expanding outside and beyond the immediate realm of sake. Um, one of such um, projects I'm working on at the moment is to um, invest in a low-carb bread specialty bakery. The reason behind that is I realized, you know, after working in the sake industry and appreciating plenty of sake, that I was taking in way too much carbs than I should or would like in, in the form of liquid. So I figured, why not, you know, find a way to, to continue enjoying sake and still be able to shave off a little bit of that carbs in the form of bread. So a friend and I are now talking about just b bouncing ideas off um, of potentially doing a low-carb bread business. And all of those business ideas do come with a price tag. So working two jobs right now to kind of fund that dream. Wow, that's actually very cool. Good luck in that direction. Thank you. Actually, if I can go off on a personal note mm. kind of quickly. I've heard a rumor you're actually trilingual. Is that right? Right. How did where that did happen? You, where did you hear that from? My wife. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Oh, I miss your wife. She's amazing. <laughs> so much fun to talk to. Um, yes, I, I do happen to speak three languages um, better on some days than others. I spent some part of my childhood growing up in South America, in Chile to be precise. So, yeah, back then it was just... You know, your parents would tell you they were moving to a whole new part of the world and you didn't really ask questions why. <laughs> you didn't have much of a choice, did you? No. Is your Spanish as strong as your Japanese and English? Not quite. Um, I would like to think I'm still conversational, quite practical and functional in Spanish, but um, my English and Japanese do quite um, dominate, both in the world of sake and outside. I'm sure you have opportunities to use the Spanish as much as you do the Japanese and English uh, as time passes on. Mm. Sake is moving in that direction. Yeah, so I hear. Um, I didn't actually mean geographically, but that is happening too. <laughs> <laughs> there's a brewery in Mexico now. There's, there's one, one in, in Spain. Brazil. Yeah, there is one in Spain as well. That's right. Mm. Uh, and we can probably look forward to more of those in other Spanish-speaking countries as well. Yeah, I sure hope so. And hoping that my Spanish kind of picks itself back up before before all the sake movement takes over. I'm sure if you start using it again, it'll pop right back up. When you look at the industry today, both inside of Japan and outside of Japan, what really gets your, your, your heart racing, your blood boiling? What do you find really, really appealing or interesting about not so much sake itself, but the industry? Hmm. This may be going off tangent a little bit, but um, I'm really interested in, in finding out more and learning more about it more 
sustainable and holistic ways of of not just brewing sake but the whole sake industry and um, looking at a a more integrated approach to brewing and by that i mean you know looking at brewers who now have turned to farmers who grow their own sake rice to the whole community that comes together to assist in that um, in that harvest and going through more um, organic or less invasive ways of brewing sake all the way down to how everything gets you know, reused and repurposed. Like, for example, how does Katsu gets repurposed in this framework of farming and brewing and the whole cyclical nature of how rice goes into sake and to people and how people can give back to the nature. I know this is probably too big of an idea to... Um... Not at all, not at all. I think <laughs> the industry is kind of close to that mm. originally and still to a certain degree. So if they can just tighten up the loose ends, then I think we'll have that that uh, uh, integration mm. uh, as a bigger part of the industry. So that's sure actually a very good so. observation, very cool, mm. very cool observation. So as you work with sake and as you play with sake, I'm sure you have the opportunity to taste a pretty wide range of sake types that are out there. We don't have to get into brands or anything like that, but what type of sake appeals to you? Mm. You can speak of grades or you can speak of flavor profiles and aromatic profiles, whatever floats your boat. But what do you like in a sake? All right. Well, this is a tough one. Um, I like a lot of sake, but if I were to pick one type or like one character of sake, I would revert back to a um, to a jimmai. I think there's something very hearty and very um, simple, but but in a very pleasant way mm-hmm. about jimmai sake. So there's a whole lot of styles of jimmai out there, right? Mm. There's rich, there's light, there's fruity. Uh, I would think that a typical or quintessential jimmai would be somewhat ricey, slightly high acidity, fairly clear, maybe a little bit viscous, good breadth behind it. Mm. And now I'm putting all these words in your mind that I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> but is that what you're referring to? Is there another type of jimmai or is it the concept of jimmai? Um, it's partly the concept of jimmai, I think. Um, you know, while Aruten Sake does amazing things in enlightening the flavor profiles and, and really extracting out the aromas, you know, perfectly a great method for, say, for example, competition sake. I personally enjoy something a bit more demure, I guess. Um, and that kind of, and I think a lot of Jumai Sake, you know, um, and that, you know, Jumai that's not necessarily a Daiginjo grade sake does that has that hearty appeal and um, that kind of leads into what kind of flavor profiles I appreciate most and when it comes to sake like you alluded to earlier John um, I really appreciate that versatility and that pairability if that's even a word it is now (laughs) it is now um pairability of sake um something that doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment whether that be like you know um, overpowering the food or being too dominant and less sessionable um and that kind of um low profile but it's it's got that classic appeal Um, i know that you visited a number of sake breweries, both the one in New Zealand and a bunch of them here in Japan. Now, when you look at the process from beginning to end, is there one particular step that stands out as most impressive to you or more impressive than the others? Um, 
there are number of fascinating um, steps and stages in the process of sake brewing. But I think the one thing that still kind of um, I get butterflies in my stomach for is really being like observing through the process of the fermentation of moromi. Because once you spend enough time with a batch, you realize that the moromi really changes in character from day one of your shikomi until the day of pressing. And, you know, it's also a very delicate phase as well, especially towards the beginning of the fermentation process. So it's really like, for me, it's almost like looking after you know, a small child, mm-hmm, like one mm-hmm, little mm-hmm. thing can derail the course <laughs> of this, <laughs> this new um, emerging life, you know, and um, that's pretty deep. It is deep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, like towards throughout the throughout the the Moromi process, I find myself like talking to the Moromi, you know, um, just kind of thinking about it from morning to night because you're always wondering oh did i set the temperature right you know does it have enough blankets around it um did i stir it too much not enough and that is a it's a very transformational process so um yeah there's no there's no two shikomi or there's no two brewing process that's the same great observation have you ever considered brewing sake here in japan Ooh. Um, I guess, um, it's now that you're thinking, uh, now that you've asked it, I don't know. And I hope I haven't sent you off in yet another direction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it's not that I'm not interested in going back into production. I enjoyed very much, um, being on kind of behind the scenes, you know, being the one brewing sake, but do I have the guts and what it takes to to do it here in Japan? I mean, there's already hundreds of guys and girls out there who are doing stellar job. Mm-hmm. It also takes a lot of stamina. Mm, that it does. <laughs> Mental and physical. So mm. uh, I don't know. That's where I draw. The, that's why I know I wouldn't be suited to it. But I don't know. A lot of concentration. A lot of stamina. And a lot of patience as well. Yeah, it's strike three for me right there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times I found myself like washing, for example, like, you know, a bucket that's only ever contained water, but you're still washing it with water so that you can use it again to pour water in it. So that kind of, you know, it's monotonous, but it's it's important little steps that you can't forgo in the daily operation of brewing sake. So, yeah, you, you need both kind of physical and emotional mental stamina as well to be a good brewer all right last technical question this popped into my mind as i was listening to you based on your experience of having brewed which of the steps in your mind or in your brewing process where you were working seemed to exert the most leverage on the nature of the final sake that's a tough question to answer actually um you know a number of different elements can can influence the outcome of a certain socket. But um, based exclusively on my experience working with Dave Joel at Zenkuro, I would say um, the pressing method. At Zenkuro, we offered several different 
um, labels of sake, several different types of sake, but they all came from the same batch. But a lot of times uh, when so we... So in have, other words, you would press one single batch in more than one way? Mm-hmm, part that's Part of it correct. with a machine, part of it with a drip, part of it with a box, things like that? No part of it with a machine, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so we do Shizuku Shibori, drip pressed, which um, puts moromi into these um, cotton bags, kind of like cheesecloth bags, and just lets the sake free flow. So only using gravity as source of extraction of sake or separation of sake from the moromi. And that generally tends to yield more elegant and aromatic sake. And the next step we would do is a funeshibori or funashibori, which is a weight pressed or pressure pressed. Uh, Did you guys use a box similar to the box that they would use when doing funashibori in Japan? Yes, except ours was made of metal. Metal, yeah. Mm. So you would still fill bags with sake, put them into that box, that mm-hmm. metal box, and then crank the lid in like they would here, correct? Um, we would still make the bags filled with sake, yes, and then we would place them in the fune, but we would put river rocks sourced from Queenstown, New Zealand, on top of the sake bags to add pressure, and each river rock is carried by hand, lovingly so, by Dave and I. Very cool, very cool. (laughs) That's a great story. It's a great little personal touch to making the sake there. Absolutely. It doesn't feel that way when you're doing it, though. Probably but not. How much did each one weigh about? Or were they various sizes? Uh, they come in various sizes, um, but some of the heavier ones, I guess, probably heavier than 10 kilos a piece. Wow. Um, it is literally backbreaking. Um, but yeah, like, you know, the sake that we, we harvested through drip press and the sake that we got from the pressure press was very different in character despite it all coming from the same batch you know same rice and same yeast and oftentimes when we have tasting people are just blown away with what a contrast these two can draw and it's not necessarily one's better than the other it's just very two very distinctive characters that we were able to bring out from the same batch and the only thing that really differed was the way that you separated the sake from from the leaves correct the pressing step correct Mm -hmm. wow that shows you how much leverage it has. Very cool. Yeah. And that was the first thing that popped in your mind when you answered it. That's, that was a good answer. <laughs> Muscle memory, I guess. <laughs> well, Marie, thanks very much for your time and for letting us all get to know you a little bit more of a, a deeper level. Uh, before we wrap up today, uh, one thing I'd like to ask, if you could suggest one thing that people out there could do to become more familiar with sake, to learn more about sake, the things that they can do at home to improve their sake experience, what would you recommend? I would say um, to not be afraid of trying something new. And um, I mean that in a way, if you see a new label at your local um, sake store that you haven't tried, or a perhaps a new terminology on the label that you're not too familiar with, don't get out of your head and try it and see it. And if you like it, um, I think, you know, um, this is something that's happened to me as well. But once you start learning a bit more about sake and you have a bit more technical understanding, all these terminologies and grades and words and certain types, you know, are supposedly better than others. All of those noise gets in your head. 
And I think it's really important to kind of get past that and break away and to not be afraid to try something new. And whether that means, you know, once something piques your interest, you actually shoot the brewer an email or, you know, try purposefully try something that you haven't tried from a liquor store. Like, um, I think there is a lot of potential for growth in trying something that you haven't tried yet. That's excellent. I think that's absolutely excellent advice that people can start to apply no matter where they are or what level they find themselves. So thanks very much for that. Thank you for your time. It's actually quite an honor to be sitting here on the show with you, John. I mean, you were not so long ago my sensei. (laughs) (laughs) And when I first came and knocked on your door, I knew literally nothing about sake. So thank you for your time. Ah, Very much my pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that. And we look forward to hearing you again on an upcoming episode of Sake on Air. So, warm welcome to a new episode of Sake on Air, the first English language podcast about sake and shochu. As most often, we are recording from the Sake and Shochu Makers Association's offices near Toranomen, downtown Tokyo. And I'm Sébastien Lemoyne, one of your regular hosts on this program. Today's episode is one of these specials where we introduce members of the team. And that topic was in high demand amongst our listeners. And I am well taking that opportunity to thank all of you for your comments, your feedback, and your suggestions. And please, we encourage you to do more and post more. And with me behind the other microphone, we have no other than Justin Potts. Justin, always a great pleasure to see you. Always. So no sake on our episode without sake. This is um, true. Or shochu, of course. And so I had absolutely no hesitation about <laughs> the sake I should bring uh, for our uh, session today. And I brought this great bottle, heavy one, <laughs> 1.8 liters. And well, could you tell us a little bit about it? But yeah. I think more importantly, your relation to it. Yeah. Um, so... Um, I've actually tried to go out of my way not to mention uh, my relationship here, um, but I spent a number of years um, as what they would call a kurabito or a sake brewer at a place called Kiduizumi uh, out in Chiba, based out in Chiba, which is actually where I live. And I live just about 10 minutes or so from the brewery now. So even though I'm actually not brewing with them regularly now, I still pop in there on a regular basis um, to help out when they need an extra hand or with events or guiding clients or things of that nature. So while I'm not an employee of them in any way, shape or form, um, Mm -hmm. I am deeply involved, I guess you could say. That being said, I am all of my work takes me to all over Japan. Uh, I work with a lot of different brewers um, in regions and a lot of different facets and different capacities. Um, But this is a place where, um, when it gets to really getting my hands dirty and really getting into brewing, this is where uh, my, I should say, my roots lie. Um, and so, yeah, I have a very strong affinity for Kiduiz Misake and this little bottle of AFS, AFS, that we're sipping on right now. So anything I say in relation to the brewery or its sake is completely biased. <laughs> so you can go ahead and... Um, any anything I say, you can go ahead and take with a grain of salt because it is uh, it is it is heavily biased and influenced by a great deal of um, personal feelings and, and motivations. So I mean, 
Yeah, be, beyond sake and your, your your profile, the profile that you that you entered into the sake on air um, website, yeah. talks about encounters with Japan's food producers yeah. and artisans, and that resulted to into a major change or shift mm. in your life, in your life mission. So, can you tell us a little bit more about about this, about your arrival yeah. in Japan? And yeah. Um, so I've been in Japan for probably roughly 15 years or so, give or take, a little bit of back and forth in, the, in between. The first, oh gosh, five or six years, I worked in a lot of different capacities from PR marketing to media localization and publishing to education, feeling it out and just kind of just constantly pursuing things that I just found generally interesting uh, through a series of unexpected events. Mm -hmm. I ended up uh, working for a company called um, Umari or Umari, U-M-A-R-I, uh, and a great deal of the work um, in that company, especially when I joined in particular, um, was with working with, not sake specifically, but worth a lot of regional development around Japan, uh, a lot of it surrounding food, agriculture, craftsmanship, um, the lifestyle, the human assets um, that are thriving in the countryside that don't necessarily have the skills, know-how, access to the larger population, either in, in Tokyo or internationally. Um, and so to try and come up with different models, products, systems, schemes through which to help to connect them to potential customers who would find value in what it is they're creating. So as opposed to necessarily having to build everything from the ground up or teach them something entirely new, how do you take their pre-existing products or place and sort of redefine that on terms that are um, that resonate with a population someplace? And so a lot of my work was um, branding is, 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 is one. Yeah, it, one that word. definitely falls in, into that category as well, for sure. Um, it's a bit of branding. It's a bit of marketing. It's a bit of sort of project design development. Um, it's. Um, it could, it's a lot of different things. It's a, it's event planning. It was just it was sort of every day was different, um, and that for better or for worse, that work lifestyle has carried on through to, <laughs> to yeah. the current day. Um, those types of projects are still a great deal of what I'm involved in. So my life is not a hundred percent sake specific, but over time, um, it took over um, much quicker than I had than I had anticipated. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I like how often you use. Um, in general, uh, unexpected or surprises or, I mean, you, you seem to enjoy being, uh, how do you, what's the word? I mean, carried mm. away from one project to the other or order. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Nowadays, kind of all I want to do is just grow rice, make sake and hang out. <laughs> that's, I'm, I'm certain, that's, that's, starting to sound, that's starting to sound rather ideal as of late. But no, I... It's, it is all accidental though, because everything that is central to my life right now, none of it was planned. None of it was in some grand scheme or a great ambition or anything. It was the one thing that coming to Japan did for me was I just kind of threw out the rule book and the rule book on everything and was just motivated solely by things that I found interesting, and exciting. And in doing that, I ended up just sort of getting deeper and deeper into, um, again, not just sake, but the inherent value in rural Japan and the lifestyle and the agriculture and the food um, 
and and what I think is potentially the greatest potential for Japan going forward. I think um, I mean it's part of a larger discussion, but I think that the future of Japan is in the countryside. Do you think there's well, not really a case to be made. I mean, everyone knows that Japanese food or believes that Japanese food is, is healthy. But do you think that the case should be presented differently and better? And mm. uh, in what in what specifically? Oh, boy. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to kind of attack that in a bit of a round the, roundabout way. Um, so I, as I said, I live out in um, out on the Bolso Peninsula, which is out in Chiba, just east of Tokyo. Um, where I live and given the lifestyle that I have right now. And I, I don't mean to say this in any sort of way of boasting or in any way of putting down any other, you know, people's, you know, food cultures or their dietary lifestyle or choices. Mm -hmm. There are all issues, all kinds of issues with accessibility and all kinds of things for a lot of different people. Um, and so it's not, you know, a matter of better or worse or anything, but I feel like I I can't imagine being in a position where I could have a more fulfilling diet on so many levels. Um, I come to Tokyo now and I walk around and I, I don't see anything I want to eat. I mean, that's, that's the reality. I feel like I'm being duped most of the time. And that's, again, that's not to put down the chefs or anybody that's out here. Yeah, yeah, sure. There's incredible chefs out here doing amazing, their, their dedication to their craft and the food they make is absolutely incredible. But unless I'm going to go out and spend $100, $150, on a meal, I'm much better hanging out with my family and my wife at home and, and cooking something from just what's readily available locally. And it's amazing. So it's the, the produce that you really are in love with here so it's it's that and i think that and then the other i guess the extension of that, that sort of br brought me into this world was when i was doing my previous work um working with a lot of producers i said farmers not necessarily uh, you know sake related but um i was visiting a lot of different producers of fermented products so soy sauce mirin miso um koji makers um, things of that nature and at the same time i was visiting those places tasting what it was they were making and then, you know, spending the night at the homes of farmers and things like that, you know, and getting up with them and helping out in the morning, having breakfast with them. And I realized that these core staples that had been integral into to my diet for the previous, you know, four or five, six years, these taste entirely different. It was almost something entirely different, what I was experiencing. And... I started looking closer at the core flavorings of these food. It was miso, it was soy sauce, it was these different things. And I think everybody on a broad level understands that these are fermented products. But, you know, 10, 12 years ago, when I realized that these were the, the clear thing defining all these that were making them different, uniquely different from other fermented food products in other countries and other places was this thing called koji. And the second I realized that it was just like a bomb went off. It was just like, everybody knows of these things, but nobody knows that there's one particular quality of these that makes them entirely different from anything else. Um, and so I started exploring that further. Um, and in exploring that, I stumbled upon sake. Mm -hmm. And I found that integrating not just sake, but those other types of products just into my lifestyle every day, all of a sudden, and one, everything tasted better. And two, I just generally felt better. Uh, 
Donc, peut-être que ça a you à créer Koji Academy. Oui, oui, oui. Mais vous êtes actif au Japon, mais quelques mois ago, vous étiez traveling through the US. Yeah. Uh, what was the reception, the audience like there? Um, it was it was excellent. It was a it was a really great experience. As I sort of feel like the best that Japan has to offer, not just to people here in Japan, but globally, um, lies in the countryside. Um, in most cases, and I would like to help further ways to communicate that and share that, um, not just with Japanese, but also with the international community. Um, and I feel like I'm in sort of a unique position to mm -hmm. do that. Um, so with Koji, that's something that I would like to utilize there as well, too. And I've we've done this a bit on small scale and sort of short trips, but also then create opportunities, not just to bring that overseas, but then to also, for people who are coming to visit, be able to have programs for learning and discovery and education around Koji, fermentation, sake, and those things that are hyper-specific to different regions around Japan that gets them really deep into not just the process, but the lifestyle that goes along with that and the connection to the agriculture and the connection to um, the local food. Um, and then, yeah, and the people. And I feel like that that is where there's going to be a lot of discovery that is going to lead to a lot of excitement in, um, in what's out there. Um, yeah, I mean, reflecting on the speed at which craft sake has been developing overseas. I mean, I'm not talking about the sales of yeah. Japanese sake of the overseas markets, but mm -hmm. the development of uh, small uh, human scale breweries, yeah. um, labs. I can definitely agree that uh, there is room for Koji labs yeah. to, to start. A uh, small yeah. difference is that Koji is more an ingredient than a finished product, yep. but at yep. the same time, it opens the doors for so yep. many applications. Yep. So applications. Absolutely. And I, and we, I don't think we have any idea as to what the extent of those applications are. Yeah. And it's, we're only scratching well, the surface. Yeah. And so that, that's, what's super exciting. That, that's and so, a strong statement. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh my goodness. I think it's uh, what's, what's going to happen. I think it's going to be super exciting. So yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, well, I had one more dimension to uh, Koji and fermentation is temperature. You, uh, yeah state that corn sake, warm sake, is uh -huh. the future of sake. Uh -huh. <laughs> Why yeah. is that? Um, yeah, so I do indeed, I think that warm sake, I think that corn sake is indeed the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that is, that's something that I, I feel pretty strongly about. Sake really is a, a, it's sort of this artwork of interventions. You know, it's every single bottle is, or every single tank or every single brew is a masterpiece but there's so there is a great deal of intervention along the way which is part of what makes it so exciting and both predictable and unpredictable at the same time and i feel like that translates to the service of sake as well in lots of really neat and exciting ways um, with warm sake being a part of that and i guess i just feel like on a very simple level you've got sake in a bottle that's kept that's kept in a refrigerator you can take that and you can pour it into glass a mm -hmm. you know it could be a you know a wine glass or a shot glass or a mochoko or whatever 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 what have you um that's one dynamic right you can change up the glassware the serviceware that's another dynamic um for a great deal of service or sake related service that's about the extent you know they have 
fantastic, beautiful beverages that are resting, um, in most cases, hopefully in a refrigerator. There are mm -hmm. exceptions. Um, but in most cases in a refrigerator that are then, that are taken great care of, that are then, you know, provided to a guest or bought and taken home and enjoyed. But you have this entirely other paradigm where you can then take that bottle and adjust the temperature. And in doing so, creating something that didn't exist before in the, in, in the previous form. And so you've got, if just having a bottle of sake and a glass in front of you opens up 50% of the potential, I feel like all of a sudden opening up temperature to be able to, and to play with that, it's like, it's like being able to maximize the percent, the potential of mm -hmm. um, what sake can do. Um, it's, it's maybe not for everyone and that's fine. And I guess I should emphasize that in preaching my love for kanzake or for warm sake, it's not at the expense of chilled sake, right? Um, the, the fact that chilled sake and the wild variations in which that can be enjoyed across so many different styles, the fact that that exists is what makes the warm sake really exceptional, right? Mm. If all you had was warm sake, the same would be true, right? So it's not so much one at the expense of the other. It's that this is a huge, huge, huge genre of the category that is vastly unexplored and underappreciated and creates incredible flavors and experiences that I don't think can be created with any other beverage. Um, and that tastes damn good. It's just so good. <laughs> getting back to that, you know, and getting back to that thing where you were talking about before, um, having something not just tastes good, but makes you feel good. But it's that's where I discovered where I didn't just drink something and go, wow, this is really good. It was something where I've had so many experiences where I take a sip of, you know, a sake that has been served to me, you know, warm to some degree. And all I have to do is just sit back and take a deep breath. Because I just, I can't, it just, it feels amazing. And I've never experienced that with any beverage in my life um, in the same way that I have with that. And again, it's not the right answer, but I'd like to think I'm not the only one. Um, and so if even just a small percentage of the population um, can experience that, I'd hope that that could um, help broaden the scope of um, sake service and people's enjoyment of it as well, too. Um, I, I don't want, I don't want sake to ape another beverage. I want it to be able to stand on its own, on its own terms. And I feel like, working with warming sake. And then once you start doing that, diversifying, you know, vessels and serving ware and things like that to accompany that, that's when it's really going to be something that is defined as something in and of its, in and of itself. Um, and it's, and I recognize the challenges to that. The service challenges are huge. Um, the education that needs to happen is vast. Um, but gosh, without it, it's, I, don't, I, I just don't want to live in that world. <laughs> so, you did that in Milano, didn't you? I, mean, serving, I did. I did a lot. Yeah. Serving sake at different temperatures. I did. I did quite a bit. Yeah. Introducing the culture. To yeah. The, yeah. The audience to the international fair. Yeah. 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 It's. Um. I did. I. I spent a year in. Year in. Uh, in Milan. Um. Back in 2015. 
um, when they had the uh, the expo there, um, working with local restaurants and distributors and things like that, doing sake education as well as events and things of that nature. And it was a fun opportunity because I was kind of given free reign to just bring in a whole lot of really interesting sake. Um, and so I just had this kind of this vast selection available and able to just sort of play with that and create all sorts of neat, interesting, different opportunities to interact with that and taste and try that with a lot of local foods and things. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was, I'd, I'd like to think it was re well received. I don't know if any, if anybody listening who was there, you can, you can well, let me know. <laughs> my understanding from or my judgment, seeing the pictures of some mm -hmm. of the uh, trips that you've organized throughout Japan mm -hmm. with, uh, particular mm -hmm. Italian, yeah. um, food specialists yeah. uh, or students yeah. show that, uh, you clearly created something there. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. It's it's so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun for me. I mean, that's that's about the extent of what I can promise is that I'm I'm having a really good time. <laughs> and if that I guess if that translates to, you know, to somebody else's experience in a, in a similar way, then that's a win, I guess. And after that, there was your life in Kido Izumi, coming back yeah. to it. What, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what were the really hard times? What were the really fun times? One thing that people, I guess, don't talk about a lot when they talk about the experience of brewing, everybody focuses on the physical demands. Um, and I guess I should I should also preface this with um, Kiduizumi is, has, and this isn't a good, bad, positive, negative judgment or anything, they have not automatized much of their process. So a lot of it is pretty hands-on. It's quite labor-intensive. A lot of the tools that are used are not designed for efficiency, but that's true with any, you know, any brewery to a degree for sure. Um, a lot of people focus on the physical aspect of it, but the mental aspect is probably the hardest part or becomes most challenging, the part that you don't necessarily expect, um, especially in this day and age when you always have so much information coming at you and you're mm -hmm. always interacting with so many terminals with so many things um, all the time. All of a sudden being in an environment where you don't really even have time to leave the brewery. I mean, you're just there. I mean, for, so for us, it was pretty much five 30 start about a five 30 finish. Um, but then in the evening, you know, you go and check on Koji and things like that. And so, you know, I would live in for a couple months and I would commute a couple months as well. And all of a sudden it's not very often you're basically shut out from the entire rest of the world period. Like there's just, there is no other option. I mean, there's no other way to really integrate a lot of other things into your life. And so all of a sudden, you're with a very small group of people every single day in the same environment doing literally the exact same thing every single day. I mean, that degree of repetition, I think, is also, you don't, a lot of people don't necessarily experience. A lot of people, you know, envision it as this sort of glamorous thing where you're, you know, you're wandering through the Koji Muro and picking up things and smelling them and doing all this. Everything is very, very time regimented from the second you walk into the brewery at 5.30 a.m. to the second you walk out at 5.30. What has to get done in those 12 hours or whatever, it's laid out and what's going to happen in what time. And every single day it's a race. Um, and so it's not just a matter of quality, it's efficiency and everything. So you don't have necessarily the leeway to stop and examine and you know wander and chat and do all these things it's a it's a very intense experience and so 
you end up getting not just into the brewing process, but you start getting into, into your own head and these other things. And so, and you just don't have an opportunity to do that very often. And especially in the winter where you wake up and you start going there and it's dark, you're in a place all day that's dark. Um, you leave in the evening and it's dark. Um, and you do that seven days a week for four months or five months or whatever. Um, and that is uniquely challenging. But also in that, there's also a lot of excitement and little instances of joy that come from that as well too. Um, I'm, I'm not the best craftsman or artisan or whatever. I am my hand, my brain, and my hand do not communicate with one another very well. Um, but even somebody like myself, by engaging with a single thing every single day on that level, you start to notice these small differences in the feel, the smell, all these different things. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how to explain it, but there's these little hints of just joy where it almost just feels like you're just going to like explode and they come at the most unexpected times throughout the process during the day. And it's not all the time. It's not every day, but like once every few days, all of a sudden you just have this moment where it just feels like everything sparks and you're not doing anything out of the ordinary or outside of your routine, but it just hits and it's, and I don't know how to explain it. I wish I had a really magnificent way mm-hmm. to, you know, communicate what that is, but there's something very all your senses are engaged and they're all contributing yeah. to that um, to yeah that emotion. yeah i think so i think so they're not you know they're not being pulled in a hundred different directions and then in doing that the whole being is focused on, on one thing it is and you start to just and just i guess just being able to notice that something that that version of you that didn't exist two months or three months or six months prior can do all of a sudden you get just this tiny bit of insight into something that you know, you can look at all the uh, temperature control sheets and all the data you want, visit all the breweries you want, that you're just, was inaccessible. Um, and so that's really great. And of course, you know, as I say, the birth of sake when, stuff, when it's being pressed and you're trying it and whatever, that's always, you know, that never gets old, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I found a great deal of um, joy and enjoyment in it. And I would like to, as I said, I'm not brewing consistently right now. Um, I spent, I did a very short stint um, up at Yamagata Masamune last year mm-hmm. up in Nintendo, which I also think is just an astounding um, producer. Um, and I would like to further continue that um, exploration with brewing as well too. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm just not being, even if my heart is pulling me that way, I've got a lot of other people and things pulling me in other directions right now. And yeah, so I yes. guess I'm just basically being told that that's not, where I need to be right now. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, as I was saying, you know, with, with Kidui's me, it's, I wouldn't be able to make that sake in the same form in the same capacity. If I was probably 50 years old or 60 years old, it would just be too getting back to the physically demanding side. It would just be probably too demanding. Um, aside from just automation, I would like to think that there's a future for sake brewing where, somebody who is 60 years old can still engage with sake brewing in a way that is feasible for them and enjoyable for them and also viable as a business. Um, and so that's kind of, in a way, kind of an end goal for me as well too, because I would love to be able to make sake brewing integral to my life. Um, but it's really, really hard given a lot of the logistical and business challenges and things that are out there right now. And so how can I help create an industry where sake be, can be born from people cr- 
in different environments in different situations creating sake on their own terms and so i'd like to contribute to that in japan a little bit it's going to probably come along a lot i don't want to say easier but more rapidly outside of the outside of japan where it's not bound by the same you know uh, rules and yeah. legal restrictions and things but i feel like getting there is going to be something really important for japan um, going forward so yeah that's sort of one of my not end game but my large overarching goals that sort of always um, in the back of my mind you're running a koji academy from um pots k which yeah. is your personal company but yeah. actually it's a family business isn't it yeah essentially a, a family business of, of two my wife and i <laughs> so. yeah, and what about the kids well they they, 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 they it, both they? well they well they both have business cards um yeah I, i'd like to think they're integral to the company um yeah just, yeah pots k the k is um the character in japanese for for home or um and in the, that sort of context resource of family so literally it's pots family or the house and of pots <laughs> as you watch your daughter grow what what i mean what do you do you see do, do you involve your daughter in your hmm. in your research about uh, gastronomy <laughs> and produce um i guess yes actually a great deal um and in actually in sake specifically in many ways of course i do not give my children sake i do not have them drink it um but um so when my first daughter was born we lived in an area called uh, shimokitazawa which is a fun area lots of great great food um you know live music bars whatnot it's a fun place really great um and we had a lot of local places that we would like to go out for food or for drinks my wife and i and Um, when my first daughter was born, all of a sudden, places that I had been going to for years and visiting, I had great relationships with the people working there and the chefs and whatnot. All of a sudden, you know, when my daughter was born, we couldn't go there anymore. They would turn us away or they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you can't. Even if the place, there wasn't really anybody there or whatever. And, you know, I'm very much sensitive to, you know, environments that are, you know, for adults that are looking for, you know, time to rest and whatever. But all of a sudden basically all of the places i enjoyed became off limits um and so i had to choose between an enjoyable and a healthy eating and drinking lifestyle outside of the home and time with my kids you know i couldn't integrate those two um and that to me was just sort of personally frustrating Um, I wasn't necessarily mad at any individual or the place that I went to. It was just, it was sort of, I guess, just disappointing um, because, I don't know, I guess I felt like the best food education is getting children around different types of food and different types of dining in different types of environments. Like it's a given, you know. Um, Japan tends to be relatively segmented and this is where at this age, these school kids spend their time here and do these things and adults go here and do these things and people and companies go here and do these things. And, you know, it tends to be pretty relatively segmented out. Um, and as a result, I feel like a lot of people don't necessarily have any insight into what those different sort of layers of society look like until they get there. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, and then it's sort of too late. Um, but, and I guess for, from a, just general food and appreciation for food um, for my kids. I wanted them to just have just as it just being a given that there are a lot of people, different people that enjoy food, lots of different types of food and beverage in many different ways in different environments. 
um, and I wanted to have that um, access for them. And I realized that that just wasn't really all that readily available in Tokyo, and at least not a lot of types of education I wanted. And it's funny they have a in Japan they've got these restaurants called famides, which are literally family restaurants. Um, they're basically modeled on like Denny's essentially, Denny's or Coco's. They have both of them here, but it's basically you know booths where you go down, order your one plate. It's super cheap. There's nothing you know. Wine is you know two two dollars a glass. You know whatever, and it's it's not a matter of good, bad, whatever. But when it comes to family restaurant, I feel like the experience of dining together with people and sharing and doing that is much more of a family experience. And all of that is sort of erased in that environment. Like it's a very, very sterile environment. Um, and for me, the idea of sort of a family restaurant is something very different. Um, and gosh, if you have kids, those are the people that actually need delicious healthy food and a good drink probably more, <laughs> just as much or more than anybody else and so um i started wanting to think about what does that look like um with regards to sake and so i try to my wife and i we sort of occasionally um go out and do sort of little pop-ups and things like that my wife has always worked in kitchens and mm -hmm. culinary she was um born her parents ran a bento and udon joint and so she grew up cooking there you know when she was super tiny and had just been working in kitchens her whole life um, and so, yeah, we sort of do little pop-ups and things like that, as well as sort of education or workshops or different things where families are welcome. And you can also have some really nice sake. And you can have some food that is going to go really well with that sake, but your kid's probably going to eat it too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of our theme is sort of how do we integrate children into different scenes where there is more diverse food and beverage culture so that they can have positive associations with those things and generate an interest in those um, from a younger age. Um, and so, yeah, we're lucky that we're, where we live out there, we, we have just access to so much great food and a lot of people who care about food and grow food and make food. And so just day to day, we have that quite a bit. And so we feel really lucky. And so, um, we try to come up with ways to, um, share that with communities of other people and families and kids who don't necessarily, um, have that and arguably could go for, you know, an afternoon of some, tasty food and drink and, and experience that with their kids and not feel like they're being a burden to um, the environment that they're, you know, stepping into. Um, so, and I feel like, I guess, to really integrate sake into the culture in a way that it is rooted in a very meaningful and positive way, it has to be rooted somewhere, I think, the familial level. Yeah. Um, and so, and right now for children, sake is completely isolated from most of their experience. And so how do we again, not serve them sake, but create not just an environment where they're around sake, but the other types of engagements and social gatherings and things like that as well too, and get them used to those environments um, that are positive. Um, and I think that that's the type of thing that's going to be long-term. Because, I mean, it comes up on the show a lot is, you know, sake uh, with regards to all the alcoholic beverages consumed in Japan, right? Sake makes up less than 7% of all of that. At that point, it's not a culture anymore. It's a subculture, which is fine. That's actually cool. Actually, it's, it's a, in a way, it's more fun. It means you can just kind of like dig in and get crazy. But when you're at that point, you really want to start to examine, I feel like, how it's really deeply rooted in the way that sake had been, you know, um, up until pre-war or so. Um, I feel like engaging family is going to be important. And that's going to be, I think, a big thing, theme for just Japan in general is people sort of the younger generation, their values are sort of changing and where they want to spend their time and their relationship with work and things like that. Um, I feel like that's going to be a really, really um, sort of important concept. Um, so, and that's personally important to me. So, 
Okay, well, with that comment, I think we're going to close. And I'm looking forward to one year of travel and sake. Yeah. Um, with you, Justin. Yeah, and we got another uh, year. We got some travels coming up here. Yeah. Yeah. See you later. Then. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, this to be continued. <laughs> yeah, there's more coming up. So, excellent. Thanks, Sebastian. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. Hey, cheers. And cheers. And that will do it for one more episode of Sake on Air. As always, thank you so much for listening and taking time to join us on this sake and shochu-fueled journey. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at sakeonair.com or you can reach us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at at sakeonair. We also have a YouTube channel going uh, that has not so much video content uh, at the moment, but if you're keen on listening to us via that platform, that is an option for you as well. As always, Sake on Air is made possible with the general support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and is broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center in Tokyo. This show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with all of your audio and sound production done by Mr. Frank Walter. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with more Sake on Air sooner than you know it. Kanpai! Kanpai!